On with a Rye. This week's episode of On One is brought to you by Talkspace. Talkspace is the online therapy company that believes therapy should be affordable, confidential, and convenient. You can join over 500,000 people who have used Talkspace for online therapy with their licensed therapist. To sign up or to learn more, go to Talkspace.com backslash Angela. That's Talkspace.com backslash Angela. Talkspace. Therapy for how we live today. It's been a long, a long time coming, but I know a change gonna come. Charlottesville, 2017. This is a special edition of On One with Angela Rye. And, you know, special circumstances certainly call for special teaching. I think it's so important for us to learn from, study, um, and heed our history makers, folks who tried to tell us a long time ago. And so today we're starting with none other than James Baldwin. Please teach. We know, everybody knows, no matter what the professions of my unhappy country may be, that we are not bobbing people out of existence in the name of freedom. If it were freedom we were concerned about, then long, long ago, we would have done something about Johannesburg, South Africa. If we were concerned with freedom, boys and girls would not, as I stand here, be perishing in the streets of Harlem. We are concerned with power, nothing more than that. And most unluckily for the Western world, it has consolidated its power on the backs of people who are now going to die rather than be used any longer. In short, the economic arrangements of the Western world proved to be too expensive for most of the world. And the Western world will change these arrangements. All these arrangements will be changed for them. This is what is beneath all the rhetoric and all those rather shameful speeches coming from my president. This imposes on us, then, a very considerable burden. I, for example, do have, in principle at least, the choice of, um, how can I put it, becoming a good American. I can make a living, yes I could, I'm well enough known to be an ornament. Uh, in short, I could ally myself on the side of what I most seriously considered to be a criminal nation. But if I can't do that, then I have to examine all the reasons that I can't and find out in myself precisely the terms of my connection with other people. When it's tried, I tried for a long time, in my own person, and you know, in things I wrote and things I said. I don't mean that I was alone, but I'm using myself as an example. To convey to my countrymen, white and black, the nature of our danger, and where we were going to go if we could not resolve the situation in our cities and in our streets, in our houses, if brother could not deal with brother because on the American continent, they talk about the color problem, but the truth is that no white American is sure he's white. (laughs) And every American Negro visibly is no longer an African. And we know what happened and we know who had the whip. So it was not my grandmother who raped anybody. (laughs) Well, if the day comes when you realize, and you don't want to realize it, that you cannot make yourself heard, that uh, the people whom you are addressing are pleased for them and for you, on the plea is a very simple one. It's saying, look at it. Forget all the mountains of nonsense that have been written and everything that's been said. Forget the Negro problem. Don't write any voting acts. We had that. It's called the 15th Amendment. During the Civil Rights Bill of 1964, what you have to look at is what is happening in this country. And what is really happening is a brother has murdered brother knowing it was his brother. White men have lynched Negroes knowing them to be their sons. White women have had Negroes burned knowing them to be their lovers. It is not a racial problem. It's a problem whether or not you're willing to look at your life and be responsible for it and then begin to change it. 
That great western house I come from is one house. And I am one of the children of that house. Simply, I'm the most despised child of that house. And it is because the American people are unable to face the fact that, in fact, I am flesh of their flesh, bone of their bone, created by them. My blood, my father's blood is in that soil. They can't face that. And that is why the city of Detroit went up in flames. It's morning, and I'm in mourning. Who died? Nobody? But why does it feel like death? Like a sudden traumatic death? The election. Did that really happen? I wasn't dreaming? Shit. This is just a small portion of the conversation I had with myself on the morning of November 9th. It was the morning after, and I was still in mourning. I was still grieving just the night before. I had laid out on my carpeted floor and sobbed like someone died, like something inside me suffered a traumatic death. On the morning of November 9th, I finally realized what it was. It was my hope. No, I was never confused about the existence of racism that was the opposite of erased by Barack Hussein Obama's election as the 44th president of the United States. We all know it was heightened, even exacerbated by his election. No, and it wasn't because he was racist or highlighted racial tension. He just didn't. And stop saying that dumbish. Like, his victory alone caused the tension. It caused the division because he was black. Far too many white folks thought going into that voting booth and casting their ballots for Barack Obama would undo 400 plus years of racist vitriol, systemic oppression, bigotry and discrimination. I cried like a baby on November 9th. This country seemingly elected someone who actively worked overtime to undermine the credibility of the nation's first black president. He's the same man who questioned President Obama's citizenship. He's the same man who questioned his ability to matriculate from Harvard University calling for transcripts. And throughout his adult life, he demonstrated a propensity for acts of discrimination, housing discrimination, not once but twice having to settle with the Department of Justice, ushering black workers off a casino floor when a racist mob boss expressed disdain for black folks, saying he preferred guys with yarmulkes counting his money because black people have lazy genes, specifically targeting his black accountant, calling for the death penalty for the Central Park Five. And that's just to name a few. Many people fail to recognize or even realize that his dad was arrested at a KKK rally in the 1920s. And all we have to say to this, everybody, is we told you. When Donald Trump announced his campaign on day one, hell, hour one, he was calling Mexican people drug dealers and rapists. So forgive me, white folks, if I'm a tad pissed that you are feigning surprise by Trump's most recent actions, because, well, we told you particularly white members of the GOP, because we definitely told you, but you were so drunk with the idea of having power in all three branches of the government that it really didn't matter what was happening and how you got that power. But hell, we told you. Instead of condemning racism and hatred at his campaign rallies, Donald Trump offered to pay the legal fees of an old white man in North Carolina who punched a black male protester in the face. And you expected his administration to be different? He showed you exactly who he was, not just throughout the campaign, but throughout his entire career. His campaign was filled with hateful rhetoric. Listen to this. So I got a little notice in case you see the security guys. We have wonderful security guys. They said, Mr. Trump, there may be somebody with tomatoes in the audience. So if you see somebody getting ready to throw a tomato, knock the crap out of them, would you? Seriously. Okay. Just knock the hell. I promise you, I will pay for the legal fees. I promise. I promise. They won't be so much because the courts agree with us, too. What's going on in this country? And if offering to pay the legal fees of Trump supporters at campaign rallies who hit protesters, if that's not enough, listen to this. In the Trump, Trump. University Trump. case, you said that you thought it was a conflict of interest that he was the judge because he's of Mexican heritage, even though he's from okay. Indiana. Yeah. Hillary Clinton uh, said 
that that is a racist attack on a federal judge. Oh, you know, she's so wonderful, you know, I mean, here's a woman that should be put in jail for what she did with her emails, and she's commenting on well, this. Let, let, me just tell you, the... let me just tell you, it's very simple. I have had horrible rulings. I've been treated very unfairly by this judge. Now, this judge is of Mexican heritage. I'm building a wall. And so no Mexican judge could ever be involved in a case well, that involves you? Uh, he's a member of a society where, you know, very pro-Mexico, and that's fine. It's all fine. But Except I think, that you're calling into I question think he his should recuse himself. Because and he's Then Latino. you also say, does he know the lawyer on the other side? I mean, does he know the lawyer? And, you know, a lot of people say But I'm not talking about that. I'm talking no, about that's like, another. That's another problem. But you're invoking his race when talking about whether I'm or not saying. he can do his job. Building a wall. I'm trying to keep business out of Mexico. Mexico's fine. There's nothing... But he's, Ameri Mexican, he's an American. Uh, he's of Mexican heritage. And he's very proud of it, as I am where I come but from. But he's my an parents. American. You keep talking about... Jake. It's a conflict Jake. of interest because of Mexico. Are you ready? He's giving me horrible but I don't care if you criticize him. That's fine. You can criticize every decision. What I'm saying is, if you invoke his race as a reason why he can't do his job... I think that's why he's doing it. But is I it think that, that's why he's doing it. If you are saying he can't do his job because of his race, is that not the definition of racism? No, I don't think so at all. No? No, he's proud of his heritage. I, I respect him for that. But you're that. saying he can't do his job because of it. Uh, look, he's proud of his heritage, okay? He's a Mexican. We're building a wall between here and Mexico. The answer is, he is giving us very unfair rulings. Rulings that people can't even believe. This case should have ended years ago on summary judgment. The best lawyers, I have spoken to so many lawyers, they said, this is not a case. This is a case that should have ended. I've this judge is giving us unfair rulings. Now I say why. Well, I want to, I'm building a wall, okay? And it's a wall between Mexico, not another country. But he's, not, my, he's not from Mexico. In my opinion, he's from Indiana. He is he's Mexican, Mexican heritage, and he's very proud of it. With every day, with each new announcement, it feels like another part of my hope dies. It's 2017, and it seems that each day we regress to the point of no return. It is that bad. So don't tell me how good things are based on some poll that you're looking at. It is that bad. And we feel it. Whether or not people see it economically or not, we feel it. The culture has shifted. And again, it's not that racism was born with Donald Trump's election. It certainly wasn't. But he used racism to benefit his election and to ensure his election. So in this moment, I couldn't be more angry, more frustrated, or more ashamed of the United States of America. I remember when Michelle Obama, my first lady, said this. I don't think we've, we've seen that. But what we've learned over this year is that hope is making a comeback. It is making a comeback. And let me tell you something. For the first time in my adult lifetime, I'm proud of my country and not just because Barack has done well but because I think people are hungry for change uh, and I have been desperate to see our country moving in that direction and just not feeling so alone in my frustration and disappointment I've seen people who are hungry to be unified around some basic common issues and it's made me proud and I feel privileged to be a part of even witnessing this, traveling around states all over this country and being reminded that there is more that unites us than divides us, that the struggles of a farmer in Iowa are no different than what's happening on the south side of Chicago, that people are feeling the same pain and wanting the same things for their families. I knew exactly what she was saying. So many of us knew and felt exactly what she was saying. It's been 400 plus years of systemic oppression. We're pledging allegiance to a flag that's ever had any allegiance to us. It's, it's been 400 years of fighting in wars for American freedom only to return home, our veterans to return home to the racism that binds us to begin with. 400 plus years of being deemed three-fifths human or even less than that, of being counted in an electoral college that doesn't even really represent us, of segregation with unfair housing, inequality in education, lack of access to health care, and so much more. Even when civil rights acts were put on the books, were signed into law. It's been 400 plus years of discrimination that we now see in the war on drugs, not just one, but now 2.0. It's 
400 plus years of mass incarceration, whether we're talking about slavery or we're talking about our brothers and sisters behind bars. It's been 400 plus years of a lack of representation, even though we are here and we're fully visible. You refuse to see us and put us in positions of power. We lack representation in local in federal and state governments. We lack representation in corporate ranks where we belong. We lack the ability to access capital to ensure that our businesses and our communities thrive 400 plus years. It is no wonder that the first time Michelle Obama felt proud of her country in her adult life is when her husband was able to run for president and get as far as he did. Well, our issues, y'all, are far too numerous to name. And our history here of these two divided Americas demonstrate clearly that issues of race and vestiges of slavery didn't start and end with Barack Obama nor did they start with Donald Trump. But fact-based discourse on these issues matters. The ability to have an intelligent solutions-oriented conversation is critical. I want to get back to the days where we could at least engage in intellectual discourse about race. We weren't ever, ever living in a post-racial society, but we could at least address race with the sophistication that said these issues have to be dealt with because they aren't going away. I give you Barack Obama's Philadelphia speech during the campaign. Of course, the answer to the slavery question was already embedded within our Constitution. A Constitution that had at its very core the ideal of equal citizenship under the law. A Constitution that promised its people liberty and justice and a union that could be and should be perfected over time. And yet words on a parchment would not be enough to deliver slaves from bondage or provide men and women of every color and creed their full rights and obligations as citizens of the United States. That what would be needed were Americans in successive generations who were willing to do their part through protests and struggles on the streets and in the courts through a civil war and civil disobedience and always at great risk to narrow that gap between the promise of our ideals and the reality of their time. This was one of the tasks we set forth at the beginning of this presidential campaign, to continue the long march of those who came before us, a march for a more just, more equal, more free, more caring, and more prosperous America. I chose to run for president at this moment in history because I believe deeply that we cannot solve the challenges of our time unless we solve them together, unless we perfect our union by understanding that we may have different stories, but we hold common hopes, that we may not look the same and may not have come from the same place, but we all want to move in the same direction towards a better future for our children and our grandchildren. And this belief comes from my unyielding faith in the decency and generosity of the American people. But it also comes from my own story. I'm the son of a black man from Kenya and a white woman from Kansas. I was raised with the help of a white grandfather who survived a depression to serve in Patton's army during World War II and a wild white grandmother who worked on a bomber assembly line at Fort Leavenworth while he was overseas. I've gone to some of the best schools in America, and I've lived in one of the world's poorest nations. I am married to a black American who carries within her the blood of slaves and slave owners, an inheritance we pass on to our two precious daughters. I have brothers, sisters, nieces, nephews, uncles, and cousins of every race and every hue scattered across three continents, and for as long as I live, I will never forget that in no other country on earth is my story even possible. It's a story that hasn't made me the most conventional of candidates, but it is a story that has seared into my genetic makeup the idea that this nation is more than the sum of its parts, that out of many, we are truly one. 
Now, throughout the first year of this campaign, against all predictions to the contrary, uh, we saw how hungry the American people were for this message of unity. Despite the temptation to view my candidacy through a purely racial lens, we won commanding victories in states with some of the whitest populations in the country. In South Carolina, where the Confederate flag still flies, we built a powerful coalition of African Americans and white Americans. This is not to say that race has not been an issue in this campaign. At various stages in the campaign, some commentators have deemed me either too black or not black enough. We saw racial tensions bubble to the surface during the week before the South Carolina primary. The press has scoured every single exit poll for the latest evidence of racial polarization, not just in terms of white and black, but black and brown as well. And yet, it's only been in the last couple of weeks that the discussion of race in this campaign has taken a particularly divisive turn. Don't forget, today's episode is brought to you by Talkspace. Therapy can be a little intimidating. Hunting down the right therapist for you, waiting in that uncomfortable office at the most inopportune times that don't work for you. Luckily, we're happy to let you know that there's ways for you to give therapy a try from the comfort of your own space and on your time. It's Talkspace. Talkspace is the online therapy company that makes it easy to connect with a licensed and experienced therapist handpicked just for you for as little as $32 a week. You can talk with your therapist whenever and wherever you are, on the web or over the phone without scheduling, traveling, or worrying about your privacy. And Talkspace is 100% confidential. You can remain completely anonymous if you want. Join the over 500,000 users who have experienced the relief of being able to talk to a therapist at their discretion and on their own time. Get matched with the perfect therapist for you right now by going to Talkspace.com backslash Angela. And just for all of you listening to On One, you can use coupon code Angela on the Talkspace app to get $30 off your first month and show your support for On One. That's code Angela for the Talkspace app or just go to Talkspace.com backslash Angela. Talkspace, therapy for how we live today. Today, we're also going to spend some time based on what happened in Charlottesville, defining white supremacy and understanding its many challenges. First, I just need to acknowledge that if loving slavery is wrong, I don't ever want to be right. I want to go to Donald Trump's press conference just from Tuesday where he talks about both sides and this false equivalence that we saw follow us throughout the duration of the campaign. Here's the press conference. What about the alt left that came charging at the, as you say, the alt right? Do they have any semblance of guilt? Let me ask you this. What about the fact they came charging, that they came charging with clubs in the hand, swinging clubs? Do they have any problem? I think they do. So, you know, as far as I'm concerned, that was a horrible, horrible day. Wait a minute. I'm not finished. I'm not finished, fake news. That was a horrible day. I will tell you something. I watched those very closely, much more closely than you people watched it. And you have, uh, you, you had a group on one side that was bad, and you had a group on the other side that was also very violent. And nobody wants to say that, but I'll say it right now. You had a group, you had a group on the other side that came charging in without a permit, and they were very, very violent. I didn't know David Duke was there. I wanted to see the facts. And the facts, as they started coming out, were very well stated. In fact, everybody said his statement was beautiful. If he would have made it sooner, that would have been good. I couldn't have made it sooner because I didn't know all of the facts. Just well, I think the driver of the car is a disgrace to himself, his family, and this country. And that is, you can call it terrorism. You can call it murder. You can call it whatever you want. I would just call it as the fastest one to come up with a good verdict. That's what I'd call it. I like Mr. Bannon. He's a friend of mine. But Mr. Bannon came on very late. You know that. I went through 17 senators, governors, and I won all the primaries. Mr. Bannon came on very much later than that. Uh, and I like him. He's a good man. Uh, he is not a racist. I can tell you that. He's a good person. 
He actually gets a very unfair press in that regard. And you had some very bad people in that group. But you also had people that were very fine people on both sides. You had people in that group. Excuse me. Excuse me. I saw the same pictures as you did. I, oh, those people, all of those people, excuse me. I've condemned neo-Nazis. I've condemned many different groups, but not all of those people were neo-Nazis, believe me. Not all of those people were white supremacists by any stretch. Those people were also there because they wanted to protest the taking down of a statue, Robert E. Lee. Was George Washington a slave owner? So will George Washington now lose his status? Are we going to take down Excuse me. Are we going to take down? Are we going to take down statues to George Washington? How about Thomas Jefferson? What do you think of Thomas Jefferson? You like him? Okay, good. Are we going to take down the statue? Because he was a major slave owner. Now we're we going to take down his statue. So you know what? It's fine. You're changing history. You're changing culture. And you had people. And I'm not talking about the neo Nazis and the white nationalists because they should be condemned totally. But you had many people in that group other than neo-Nazis and white nationalists, okay? And the press has treated them absolutely unfairly. Thank you all very much. Thank you. Thank you. So over the last few days since what happened in Charlottesville, we've seen everything from Simone Sanders, who is my colleague at CNN, a fellow political commentator, being told to shut up on air by the former attorney general um, of, of the state of Virginia, uh, Ken Cuccinelli, all the way out of line. We've seen the defense of the Confederacy. Donald Trump saying just in that press conference, like, should we get rid of the George Washington statues and Thomas Jefferson and et cetera, et cetera. I don't understand why not wanting to lean into loving slaveholders or slave owners is a thing, right? Like, I don't think that we have to... Uh, be reverent to them. <laughs> I think that there's a way that you can ensure that you don't erase history so that you don't repeat that history without honoring it um, and revering it. I think over the last couple of days, it's important for us to acknowledge that um, there's been a lot of gaslighting going on with the disavowals that folks claiming that Donald Trump has disavowed appropriately in some way the white supremacist behavior that we saw in Charlottesville. That is not what he did. It's amazing to me that when it is a Muslim person who is doing some type of offensive act that is deemed terrorism, Donald Trump doesn't hesitate. He doesn't need any of the facts. He can just jump out there and lo and behold when it is a white guy driving through a crowd of peaceful protesters he can't call that terrorism and he took his time to wait to acknowledge and get the facts said that he disavowed white supremacy neo-nazi behavior but then dialed that back talking about there were people who were wrong on both sides well here's the bottom line for me and i talked about this on twitter you want your president to disavow something he benefits from on the daily. He literally has folks who are white supremacists in his in the White House. He has folks working for them that push out white supremacist based policy. What do you think the Muslim ban was? What do you think the wall is and building a wall in Mexico, by the way, um, U.S. taxpayers, you're paying for it. What do you think that is? That is white supremacist ideology coming out of the White House. And so we should not expect for a president who is benefiting from white supremacy, white rage, who thrived on white rage during his campaign and appealed to the worst part of white rage, white fear, white anger to now disavow that. He can't disavow that. White supremacy is the view that white is right, always right, and that whiteness is somehow superior to all else. And it is important to note that Donald Trump continues to carry himself in that way. We talked earlier in this podcast about Donald Trump benefiting from white supremacy and leaning into white supremacy throughout his career. Donald Trump is fixated on solving for terror in this country um, and internationally, but it's only when it relates to 
terror that is acted upon by Muslim people. And what's fascinating to me about this is there's an article from June in Newsweek. And according to that article, there was a joint project done by the investigative fund at the Nation Institute and revealed from the Center for Investigative Reporting that found within the past nine years, right wing extremists plotted or carry out nearly twice as many that's twice as many terrorist attacks as Islamist extremists of the 115 right-wing incidents police only foiled 35 percent probably because their attention has been a little uh, scattered focusing on something else compared compare this to the 63 Islamist terrorism cases where police foiled 76% of the planned attacks. So again, of the 115 right-wing incidents, police only foiled 35%. In this country over the past nine years, that means that includes the time that Barack Obama was president. So there was an increase in that, just like we saw in a rise in hate incidents since Donald Trump's elections, when folks are emboldened and they if they think they're in a safe space or there's a safe haven or it's permissible, there's a rise in activity. Police only foiled 35 percent because resources have been devoted to foiling attacks by folks of the Muslim faith of Islamist terrorism is what this says. So I think that's important to note. Fact check for the Trump supporters out there. Y'all are focusing your energies on the wrong thing. If you focused on white supremacy and the fact that there are domestic terrorists in this country beyond Dylan Roof, and it is important to acknowledge that even Dylan Roof is a domestic terrorist, something else Donald Trump failed to say. It's worth noting that there are several people in this space, right wing folks, folks call them alt right. I'm not calling it alt right anymore. It's white supremacy. It's racism. We're going to call it what it is. It's time for uh, law enforcement to focus on the number of attacks that are happening in this country. Um, And there are far more right wing incidents than there are Islamist extremists. So. What also is interesting about this, you heard the statistic now, and this was from June, but in May, in May of 2017, just this year, just a few months ago, the Trump administration ended an Obama era program that would have provided grant funding to organizations working to combat white supremacist organizations. There were 30 organizations that uh, President Obama's administration had already selected that are doing this work to get these funds. And with white supremacy on the rise, hate incidents on the rise, and vicious, violent, racist rhetoric on the rise, y'all's president fought back by cutting out the legs from underneath a program that makes being racist and a white supremacist more difficult. Whose side is he on? Whose side is he on? Well, we already know the answer to this, which is why it's it's fascinating to me that people struggle to say that Donald Trump is a white supremacist or traffics in white supremacy or is a bigot or is a racist or has benefited in any way from racist behavior or acts in racist manners or pushes forth policies that are racist. Like we see all of the evidence right here. He continues to undermine these programs that make it easier for us to survive and thrive in this country. And it's already tough enough. So we already know the answer. We know where Donald Trump stands on this issue. We know where his father stood on this issue. Um, if we rely on the fact that he was arrested in that uh, at that KKK rally in Queens in the 1920s. So I think it's very important for us to understand that. And then if we need to any further proof, we can listen to David Duke. Trump for us is a meme. Trump for us is a principle. He's not gone far enough, but we don't we don't think that Trump is going to go all the way. He's the beginning. Trump is part of the evolution of the heritage and the freedom of this country. That's what that's how we see Trump. We believe in preserving the heritage of this country. And the truth is, white people we're the ones being discriminated against with affirmative action. And there's a purposeful program of purposeful program of ethnically cleansing our people in our own nation that our own forefathers built and we are not going to be replaced so with that in mind 
Um, I'm not interested in requesting anything. I'm not interested in any ask. I'm interested in us buckling down and focusing on what matters for our survival in this country. We spent time talking about these two Americas. The fact that I don't feel any allegiance to this flag whatsoever. The fact that people want me to feel some type of honor or reverence for a Confederate flag when these folks lost the war, number one. And that is a symbol of oppression to me. And if I'm very honest, I will tell you that the American flag is in many ways a symbol of oppression to me. We have a lot of healing to do in this country, y'all. A lot of healing to do. And it's not going to get any better if we don't acknowledge our truths. Are you proud to be an American? What are you most proud of? And if we're honest, we go back and forth. Sometimes we're proud. Sometimes we're not. I was proud of this country when it elected Barack Obama. I was not proud of this country when there was the rise of the Tea Party talking about let's take our country back. And we heard the same type of rhetoric with Donald Trump saying, let's make America great again. We know what that means. That's about taking something from us. That's about losing ground. That's not about sharing space with a browner America. And so I think we have to be honest and really live our truth. What is the national anthem to us? What does it mean to us? Why would someone as brilliant, as dynamic, and as talented as a Colin Kaepernick not be able to get drafted? What does that say about the owners and the racism that exists there and their lack of understanding about the plight of a black man or a black woman in this country? It's time for us to really foster understanding, and we can't do that if we're not listening to each other. So we have some demands to make, y'all. We really, really, truly do. And it's not about asking permission. It's about telling people what it is. If you're celebrating a symbol of hate to us and it's painful, you're no longer going to be able to do that. We're going to act like what they did in Baltimore and take down your monuments, your statues of, of glory for you that are painful for us in the dead of night. They're coming down. The Confederate flag is coming down. We're not going to tolerate the Confederate symbol being included in state flags anymore. We're not going to tolerate that flag waving over state capitals anymore. We're not going for it. And so in the spirit of Bree Newsom, these things got to come down. Shout out to Bree Newsom. I'm not interested in your comfort with my delivery. This is harsh and real and raw because that's how I feel about all of this. I'm interested in our ultimate freedom, our ability to survive in this country. I'm not interested in serving a country that doesn't serve us back. So when we scream Black Lives Matter, maybe now you'll understand. I don't want to have to tell you Black Lives Matter also or All Lives Matter because we can look no further than what happened this weekend in Charlottesville to understand that that is no different to us than what happened in Ferguson. Or what happened in Baltimore or what happened in Baton Rouge or what happened in Staten Island. The difference, the only difference is it wasn't done by a law enforcement officer. It was someone perpetuating hate that is driven by them quite literally in their car. And we're talking about the type of hate that's systemic, the type of racism that's systemic, that makes you look at us and see criminal, that makes you look at us and see violent. We're not standing for that anymore. And I do want to acknowledge I didn't have a moment in blackness this week because I kind of just needed to rant and get some stuff off my chest. <laughs> but there is a silver lining. And I want to point you all to something that is so important. Um, and shout out to Bilal's manager uh, yesterday for calling this to my attention. There may be something you all don't know about Charlottesville, and it just may be the path forward for us to really achieve freedom in this country. There's a segment that I'm going to play for you from Democracy Now! with Amy Goodman. And here she's interviewing Charlottesville Vice Mayor Wes Bellamy, who I have to have on this program. This is a fascinating brother. I'm only playing a small snippet of what he said on this program, but it is amazing. Brother, we applaud you for your courage and for the work that you're doing in Charlottesville and beyond. But Wes Bellamy talks about not just the removal of the Robert E. Lee statue, in Charlottesville, he also talks about the work he's doing on an equity package in Charlottesville. Yes, 
pay attention, an equity package, because that right there, major key alert. Listen to this clip. Wes Bellamy, welcome to Democracy Now! Can you talk Thank about you your original push to have the Robert E. Lee statue taken down and what you ultimately got <clears throat> that isn't talked about as much, which is mm-hmm. some kind of um, some kind of package. funds for yeah. reparations? Yeah. So this all started nearly a year and a half ago in March of last year. Um, I received several different phone calls, emails. There was a petition from a local student here in the area about an effort and a push to remove the statue of Robert E. Lee. People in Charlottesville have been talking about this for some years, but just last year there was a nuance in a bill that was vetoed at the state house by our governor that essentially said that if you want to move these kind of statues and things of that nature, it's a local issue. So you have the right to be able to do so. Uh, My colleague and I, Ms. Kristen Sekos, we both decided to push really hard. We held a press conference in which there were probably about 150 people who came out, about 80 or excuse me, I want to say about 110, 120 people or so who were pro moving the statue and about 30 to 40 uh, sons and daughters of the Confederacy who came with their large flags and very, very upset that we were pushing to do so. Subsequently, since then, there's been a lot of things that have transpired. I mean, I've received all kinds of death threats, been probably called every kind of N-word that you can think of. And uh, it's been a, a very interesting topic. But I think that we have awakened, to say the least. We've seen a group of people here in our community who have been marginalized, who haven't necessarily had a voice. We're waking up and we're saying that we are going to stand tall. And in the midst of all of this, we also got an equity package passed, um, which I presented in January before we had our first vote and it was unanimously passed, which gave us $950,000 to our African-American Heritage Center, um, $250,000 to build onto one of the parks in the local African-American community. Um, we got $2.5 million to public housing redevelopment, $50,000 annually for anyone who lives in public housing to get free GED training, um, another $50,000 to anyone who lives 80% below the uh, AMI, which is the annual medium income, as well as public housing to have scholarships of sorts to go to our local community college. We got a position for uh, Black Male Achievement, which we're calling a Youth Opportunity Coordinator. So, I mean, in all in all, it was about $4 million basically for from uh, funding put specifically into marginalized communities to help bridge the gap and create equity. All of this is about equity. We need equity and not equality. Those are two different things. Equity is giving everyone what they need in order to have the same playing field. Equality is just giving everyone the same thing. I don't want equality. I want us to have equity and we're going to push for equity in every space, whether that's public parks, whether that's in our city budget, no matter where it is, as long as I'm on council and I'm going to push for it until the day I die. That was Amy Goodman and Charlottesville Vice Mayor Wes Bellamy, who we have to have on this program to chat with. Um, He's doing some amazing work, and I think we could definitely, definitely learn from what he's doing in Charlottesville and apply some of those same efforts into local communities everywhere. That's why so often you hear people talk about all politics is local. There's a reason for that. Some of the most fundamental and important changes we can make happen on the local level. So it's time for so many of us to engage a lot more on that level. Thank you for what you're doing with the equity package. We can't wait to hear more about it, Um, Wes. And again, look forward to having you on this program. Until next week, let's hold on to hope. Let's join Wes in his fight for equity and definitely resist y'all. We're going to end this week with the hope of Barack Obama's Philadelphia race speech. What we know, what we have seen is that America can change. That is the true genius of this nation. What we have already achieved gives us hope, the audacity to hope for what we can and must achieve tomorrow. Now in the white community, the path to a more perfect union means acknowledging that what ails the African-American community does not just exist in the minds of black people that the legacy of discrimination and current incidents of discrimination, while less overt than in the past, that these things are real and must be addressed, not just with words, but with deeds, by investing in our schools, in our communities, by enforcing our civil rights laws and ensuring fairness in our criminal justice system, 
by providing this generation with ladders of opportunity that were unavailable for previous generations. It requires all Americans to realize that your dreams do not have to come at the expense of my dreams. That investing in the health, welfare, and education of black and brown and white children will ultimately help all of America prosper. In the end, then, what is called for is nothing more and nothing less than what all the world's great religions demand, that we do unto others as we would have them do unto us. Let us be our brother's keeper, Scripture tells us. Let us be our sister's keeper. Let us find that common stake we all have in one another, and let our politics reflect that spirit as well. For we have a choice in this country. We can accept a politics that breeds division and conflict and cynicism. We can tackle race only as spectacle, as we did in the OJ trial, or in the wake of tragedy, as we did in the aftermath of Katrina, or as fodder for the nightly news. We can play Reverend Wright's sermons on every channel every day and talk about them from now until the election and make the only question in this campaign whether or not the American people think that I somehow believe or sympathize with his most offensive words. We can pounce on some gaffe by a Hillary supporter as evidence that she's playing the race card, or we can speculate on whether white men will all flock to John McCain in the general election regardless of his policies. We can do that. But if we do, I can tell you that in the next election, we'll be talking about some other distraction, and then another one, and then another one, and nothing will change. That is one option. Or, at this moment, in this election, we can come together and say, not this time. This time we want to talk about the crumbling schools that are stealing the future of black children and white children and Asian children and Hispanic children and Native American children. This time we want to reject the cynicism that tells us that these kids can't learn, that those kids who don't look like us are somebody else's problem. The children of America are not those kids, they are our kids, and we will not let them fall behind in the 21st century economy. Not this time. This time we want to talk about how the lines in the emergency room are filled with whites and blacks and Hispanics who do not have health care, who don't have the power on their own to overcome the special interests in Washington, but who can take them on if we do it together. This time. We want to talk about the shuttered mills that once provided a decent life for men and women of every race, and the homes for sale that once belonged to Americans from every religion, every region, every walk of life. This time, we want to talk about the fact that the real problem is not that someone who doesn't look like you might take your job, it's that the corporation you work for will ship it overseas for nothing more than a profit. This time, this time, we want to talk about the men and women of every color and creed who serve together and fight together and bleed together under the same proud flag. We want to talk about how to bring them home from a war that should have never been authorized and should have never been waged. And we want to talk about how we'll show our patriotism by caring for them and their families and giving them the benefits that they have earned. I would not be running for president if I didn't believe with all my heart that this is what the vast majority of Americans want for this country. 
This union may never be perfect, but generation after generation has shown that it can always be perfected. And today, whenever I find myself feeling doubtful or cynical about this possibility, what gives me the most hope is the next generation. The young people whose attitudes and beliefs and openness to change have already made history in this election. There's one story in particular that I'd like to leave you with today. A story I told when I had the great honor of speaking on Dr. King's birthday at his home church, Ebenezer Baptist in Atlanta. There's a young 23-year-old woman, a white woman named Ashley Bay, who organized for our campaign in Florence, South Carolina. She'd been working to organize a mostly African-American community since the beginning of this campaign. And one day she was at a roundtable discussion where everyone went around telling their story and why they were there. And Ashley said that when she was nine years old, her mother got cancer. And because she had to miss days of work, she was let go and lost her health care. They had to file for bankruptcy. And that's when Ashley decided that she had to do something to help her mom. She knew that food was one of their most expensive costs. And so Ashley convinced her mother that what she really liked and really wanted to eat more than anything else was mustard and relish sandwiches. Because that was the cheapest way to eat. That's the mind of a nine-year-old. She did this for a year until her mom got better. And so Ashley told everyone at the round table that the reason she had joined our campaign was so that she could help the millions of other children in the country who want and need to help their parents too. Now, Ashley might have made a different choice. Perhaps somebody told her along the way that the source of her mother's problems were blacks who were on welfare and too lazy to work, or Hispanics who were coming into the country illegally. But she didn't. She sought out allies in her fight against injustice. Anyway, Ashley finishes her story and then goes around the room and asks everyone else why they're supporting the campaign. They all have different stories and different reasons. Many bring up a specific issue. And finally, they come to this elderly black man who's been sitting there quietly the entire time. And Ashley asks him why he's there. And he doesn't bring up a specific issue. He does not say health care or the economy. He does not say education or the war. He does not say that he was there because of Barack Obama. He simply says to everyone in the room, I am here because of Ashley. I'm here because of Ashley. Now by itself, that single moment of recognition between that young white girl and that old black man is not enough. It is not enough to give health care to the sick or jobs to the jobless or education to our children. But it is where we start. It is where our union grows stronger. And as so many generations have come to realize over the course of the 221 years since a band of patriots signed that document right here in Philadelphia. That is where perfection begins. Thank you very much, everybody. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.